listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Hello, everyone. This is Kyle Matthews of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Studies. Uh, we're very excited to have another uh, interview today as part of the Coronavirus Diaries, talking about human rights in the age of a global pandemic. Today, we're lucky to have Serge Thrugant uh, join us from Brussels. Serge works for the Economics uh, Institute for Economics and Peace. Uh, he's a director for Europe and the MENA region, which is the Middle East and North Africa. Recently, uh, I had the pleasure of welcoming Serge to, um, to Ottawa, where we, we did the first Canadian launch of the Global Terrorism Index. So, Serge, thank you for joining us. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So, so Serge, I'd like to start off, maybe um, everyone we're talking to are in different parts of the world. You're in the heart of Europe's capital, in, in Brussels, in Belgium. Maybe just tell us personally, well, what is life like there right now? Are you on lockdown? Uh, what, what is the situation? Well, we have been in lockdown since the 19th uh, of March. It's, um, I would say it's a soft lockdown. So, of course, uh, you are asked to stay at home and only uh, exit your home for uh, essential things. It means you can go to groceries, you can go to pharmacy. And for some people who cannot work from home, they can go to work also. Uh, we are also allowed to go out, but just around the place where we live, to do some uh, physical activities. So we can walk, we can bike, uh, we can run. Uh, and so this has been quite, um, I would say, easy to stand through over the past uh, two or three weeks. Um, of course, enforcement of those measures are very, very difficult, but that's like everywhere. Five, up to 99% of the population, people are really taking uh, the restrictive measures into account and are really uh, aware of the fact that if they respect this, we will get through this crisis uh, faster and uh, with less damage. Sounds, sounds just like the situation in Montreal. Um, Sarah, tell me, uh, the think tank you work for, it's an international think tank. Um, you've got offices in Australia, Brussels, New York, and Mexico. How has this like, global lockdown had an impact on, on, on the work of your institute? Well, um, in all those places that you mentioned, and also in Arari and Zimbabwe, a lockdown is, uh, is applied at the moment. So most of the people working for the Institute for Economics and Peace are now working from home. We are lucky to have an intellectual job. So this allows us to easily shift to teleworking and um, almost all uh, members of the Institute for Economics and Peace are now working from home and are basically doing the same uh, job that they, do, they would do in the regular office. But of course, it's, it's less fun because you don't have your colleagues around you. But we are in permanent exchange between all the regional offices and also the head office in uh, in Sydney, Australia, as you said. So I would say there is, a, there is not really, I would say, a, a less productivity or less efficiency at the Institute for Economics and Peace. We're basically doing the same job, but from home at the moment with a little bit enhanced communication, and this is working very well. Oh, that, that's good to hear. So, um, Serge, one of the major activities of uh, your institute is the Global Terrorism Index, where you, you, you work and compile a view of what's happening across the globe, um, showing number of attacks, number of casualties, what countries are most hit. 
Um, I know it's too early on and then you're not going through all the data yet, but, but do you see any um, changes so far because of this coronavirus, the lockdown? Or are we seeing a diminishing in, in transnational terrorist groups or, or is it just where the media is not focusing on it yet and, and we don't really know what's happening? Do, do you have any, any comments or any remarks you can make about this? I would say, if, uh, first, things, when, when you look, first things first, when you look at the Global Terrorism Index, you see that the two main drivers for terrorism are conflict and uh, non-respecting human rights, so high, high levels of political terror. I would say if you look at those two drivers today, and as you said, it's way too early to have a look on this. I think a lot of uh, ceasefires throughout the world have been applied, and I heard today that ceasefires have been asked for Yemen uh, for the period of the containment of uh, the coronavirus. So I would say if those conflicts are stopping around the world, even if it's for just a pause, those are times in which terrorism as a tactic, a technique, or procedure cannot be used within, within this ongoing conflict. So uh, in, or if there is an impact on the intensity of those conflicts, I guess that would have also an impact on the amount of uh, terrorist attacks that will occur in those countries. So there is a first direct link to this. Um, and I, I think this is positive. And I would add to this uh, some messages that uh, emanated from international terrorist groups like the... Uh, like Daesh, for example, or the Islamic State, who clearly uh, gave the instructions to their fighters not to travel anymore and basically to stay put until coronavirus is, is over. They don't want to lose their, their fighters neither. So I guess uh, those international terrorist organizations can go into some lockdown also. At least that's uh, what I saw also online and in open source. But as you say, it's way too early to look about this. Now, on the other hand, when we, when we think about the political terror, at least non-respecting the human rights, um, I think this is where we need to be a little bit more careful because uh, we, we saw that a lot of governments went into um, a special way of uh, leading their country. So we saw a lot of governments, and the same thing in Belgium, we, we received from the, the, the parliament, I would say, more authority to really take the necessary, necessary measures. Uh, when I look at what happened in Belgium, I think this happened the right way because the, the parliament gathered, gave, uh, gave a green light for that, but just for coronavirus measures and for a limited amount of time. So basically, we are giving up, and I think that's what you need to do. I mean, when I think about the right to freedom, so we, we are not uh, enjoying this right to move freely, we cannot gather anymore, um, or privacy. I mean, look what is happening in China today when you need to download a special app just so that... Uh, basically Big Brother, the government, can, can watch you and, and know who you are in contact with. I mean, that's not really happening at the moment here. I mean, we, are, we need to give him some freedom, but it's regulated. It's a period of time just for a crisis, then we can go back to living in a nice liberal democracy and enjoy your freedom again. But that's not happening the same way in, uh, in uh, different countries. So I gave the example of China, where clearly they go into, uh, they really cut into the personal freedom there for, I would say, uh, health or healthcare re reasons, and I can understand why, but I think it's a little bit going too far. On the other hand, you can also see uh, governments here in Europe or parts of the EU or part of NATO, Hungary, for example, or even Poland, that are uh, not applying, you know, the same type of restrictions to this uh, transfer of power out of the parliament. So when you look at Hungary, for example, there is no limitation of time, and it's, it's it, of course, it's in the framework of Corona, but it's not so clear. Clearly, I mean, you know, the framework is not so restrictive that than you would expect in a liberal democracy. So if those uh, human rights and, that are restricted now, and I understand why they are restricted, if this is not going back to a, a normal level of respect of human rights, we might see this spark of some kind of uh, frustration, grievances that eventually th then can 
uh, transform into the use of violence or, or the use of terrorist uh, terrorist attacks. So, when you focus on the two more main main drivers of uh, of terrorism, um, you can clearly see a positive and negative effect of uh, on those two drivers. No, I, I agree with you. I think um, you know we have seen, as you mentioned, in in Hungary, uh, a push to kind of uh, take over democracy, uh, moving to more an authoritarian model. That that's concerning. Uh, the exportation of, of China's kind of um, model of state surveillance. Um, we live in, in times that if we don't stand up for uh, our rights um, over the long term, we, we, we might face a, a different future. So it's interesting. Serge, I, I would also like to talk, you do something also very interesting at the Institute. You, you have this concept of positive peace. And you talked a bit about um, these global ceasefires and the UN Secretary General made a call just uh, last week asking for global ceasefire so that there could be peace that would allow the health systems of these fragile countries to, to deal with this incoming pandemic. Tell us a bit about, about this concept of positive peace, because I don't think a lot of people in Canada or internationally know about the important work that you do on that. Well, uh, Positive Peace is IP's global initiative to empower millions of people to really achieve the full potential in a rapidly changing world. And when you look at the current crisis today, the world is changing really, really quickly. So what we want to do is give the opportunity for every human being to really develop its own potential and flourish. Uh, positive peace are basically the attitudes, institutions, and structures, structures that are going to create and sustain peace. And we have done this by you know, the extended work on, on data sets and the metrics for peace that we have been doing almost for 15 years now at the Institute for Economics and Peace. And we have identified um, those main indicators that are closely, statistically, most associated with, with peace. So basically, the results of uh, positive peace is that countries having a high level of positive peace uh, will, of course, develop and sustain peace. But next to this, and we are able to quantify and measure this also, will also gain some benefits. And those, most of those benefits will, would be economic, so a faster-growing GDP, uh, lower in, and more, more, more stable inflation rates, better credit ratings, lower, uh, uh, I would say, credit rate ratio also. But there is also an, an enhancement of the ESG measurement, so ecological, uh, social, societal, and also governments-wise. So countries that have invested previously in positive peace are much more resilient today to cope with the shock that the corona crisis is. Um, of course, I mean, we can debate. We can debate there about preparedness and making sure that uh, you take care of the security of your population where we're well prepared. I mean, this is at the heart of research that is being done at the moment. We're going to look at the levels of pre preparedness and we are going to look also at the level of resilience and link this to the investments that have been made in positive work. So, so this is interesting. Some of your uh, measurements like GDP, economic growth, we're seeing that this pandemic is, is going to have a, a severe economic shock in many countries, if not every country in the world. So, so it sounds like some of the measurements that you have will allow us to kind of map out um, where we might see areas of, of emerging conflict or, or political violence. Uh, I would say, yeah, but this, I mean, not, not immediately. I think it is uh, a little bit too short now. I mean, I mean, you are still in the crisis and we, I think we all understand that the world after COVID will not be the same world as it is today. I think we need to be very careful in not forgetting to continue to invest in peace and especially to continue to invest in positive peace. As I said, uh, countries with high levels of positive peace will have high levels of resilience. 
Uh, what we have seen in the past, for example, or one of the examples that I could give you is more linked to the impacts of uh, natural disasters. I mean, natural disasters are responsible today for about 60% of all displaced persons. Uh, uh, what we have seen is that uh, the distribution of natural disasters all over the world are, is, is equitable, I would say. All regions of the world, we've seen the same amount and the same intensity of natural disasters. On the other end, what we see is that uh, the impact of those natural disasters is in relation, the, the direct relation with your levels of positive peace. So countries with high levels of positive peace will have lower impact of those natural disasters. Countries with low levels of uh, high impact, it means more, more destruction, more people killed, injured, more people displaced for a longer period of time, and then they have more problems to come back as the, the, the time or the time uh, lapse is, uh, is, uh, is big. I mean, we still need to do the research, but I can imagine that yeah, there, would, there could be a same type of correlation. I mean, this is wishful thinking here, of course, but what we are going to see is, you know, in the research that we are going to do between uh, linking COVID to at least the crisis that we are in now, two positive feeds, we will be able to measure and quantify the effects of uh, positive peace on certain societies or the, the way you organize a society and uh, the way you are then afterwards being able to deal with, uh, with a crisis or a shock like, uh, like COVID. What we have seen in the past is high levels of positive peace will give you more resilience and more ability to quickly respond to a crisis and also taking a shock. Well, Serge, I'm just going to make one last comment. I, I, I think it's very important what you said, the need to invest in peace, because one of my fears and one of the fears that my colleagues have now is that as countries are locked down, as our economy is going to go through major problems, that there's concern that we might stop, uh, might make serious budget cuts to our development assistance and our humanitarian aid programs. Um, so, so I think this is something that think tanks and like ours, we have to stand up and say, we cannot forget about what's happening outside of the world. We need to invest in them. Uh, our world is more interconnected than ever before. So I think that's a, that's a very, um, that's a takeaway, but a positive message. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have been talking about ceasefires and of course ceasefires are good because casualties are not uh, been creating during the ceasefire and also the fighting stops. But that's not what we are really interested in. We need to, what we want to install is really is creating sustained peace, long-lasting peace. So I'm not, of course, ceasefires are good, but we want to create long-lasting peace. And with a system thinking approach and really a framework that is a, uh, that is giving you um, the right ways to invest in peace. You know, we have eight pillars, eight different pillars of positive peace. Uh, well-functioning well government, equitable distribution of resources, free flow of information, development of the human capital or high levels of human capital, levels of corruption, eight of those pillars, all, uh, all those pillars are connected to at least uh, underpinned by indicators that allow us to uh, measure and quantify. And it's only when you invest in all those parts of positive peace, so basically it's a new form, it's an innovative form of development. If you can invest in all those different parts, you will have the systemic, I would say, return on your, on your investment. It's not enough, you know, to focus on one or the other. So I guess um, positive peace could be a framework to continue to invest, but in a way that is almost guaranteeing you an, a, a positive uh, economic evolution, but also a, a positive ecologic societal and governance evolution. And I think those might be very good times to really have a, a deeper look at and a better focus on the principles of, uh, of positive peace, but also on the positive outcome of an investment in positive peace. We have seen that those we invested in in the past will have a terrorist attack under another type of shock, a natural disaster. 
read the deal. Um, people who did not invest before in positive peace should start to do so, and those who have the capacity should start to invest in other countries to make sure that positive peace can bring a better future to those countries and especially to the people living in those countries. So, Serge, I, I, I know that we had some talk about launching your positive peace report in Canada this, this spring, early summer. It doesn't look like that's going to happen because of uh, the travel restrictions, but I, I hope we can collaborate, do something online to bring this to the Canadian audience. I also hope that travel will allow us to maybe collaborate uh, and do another Canada launch of the Global Terrorism Index in the fall. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and we really appreciate your comments and expertise. No, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pleasure and uh, we will definitely do uh, something online uh, for the launch of the Global Peace Index. So that's foreseen mid-June. Uh, I mean, I'm super interested in this and my colleague Michael Collins at the New York office also. So there will be definitely something known for the Global Peace Index. And then when you look at positive peace, I mean, the next report comes out uh, late October and, of course, November for the Global Terrorism Index. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm really appreciate our collaboration. So let's go for it and uh, let's continue to inform Canada and the world about uh, the research of the Institute for Economics and Peace. And thank you for uh, this invitation and really uh, a nice uh, discussion we had in the past few minutes. Thank you very much.